Hey guys, welcome to the latest episode of the 4040 Vision Podcast, the ultimate sports history pod where hindsight is 4040. Before we get started, let's pay some bills and hear from our presenting sponsors. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the 4040 Vision Podcast. I'm your host, Colette Abdallah, and I'm joined today by a special guest, Sabrina Merchant of The Athletic. Uh, Sabrina is a women's basketball staff writer for The Athletic, and she's previously covered the WNBA and NBA for SB Nation. Uh, Sabrina, how's everything going today? Uh, it's going well. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, of course. Thanks for agreeing to come on. So uh, today's topic is about the current and future state of women's basketball, the WNBA, uh, the growth of the women's game um, here in the U.S. But uh, before we jump into all that, I wanted to get to know you a little bit and understand your journey and how you got to the athletic. So what's your background? When did you become interested in basketball? Did you play growing up? And when did you decide that you wanted to become a sports writer for a living? Yeah, basketball has been a part of my family basically since I was born. My parents moved to L.A. right around the time of the Showtime Lakers, and that was kind of my dad's first introduction to America, becoming a Laker fan, and that's how he essentially assimilated to, you know, being an American living in L.A. And when my brother and I were born, you know, he gave us these Laker footy pajamas, and we always watched games at home and, you know, had subscription to the L.A. Times and would read that every morning if we didn't get to watch the game last night, even if we did get to watch the game the night before. So the Lakers was pretty much the lifeblood of our family for a very long time. I played a little basketball growing up. Um, like a lot of immigrant families, my parents were more interested in academic side of things than athletic side of things, so sports weren't exactly prioritized. I definitely kept watching sports throughout my life, but I, I you know, playing the game wasn't really a big part of it, you know, for most of it. Uh, but then when I got to high school, I decided to write for the school paper my senior year, uh, did a little football. Um, and then when I got to college, it really just jump-started because I attended Duke and, you know, writing about sports, obviously much bigger deal at an institution like that. Writing about basketball, very big deal at an institution like that. Even while I was in school, though, I wasn't sure that this was something that I wanted to do, like, forever. Um, I was mm -hmm. still sort of in that mode of the thing that you do for a job shouldn't be your primary passion because then what do you do when you're trying to get off of work? <laughs> and then I sort of That's realized okay. that, you know, I spend so much time in my work that I might as well just do something that I really love, even if it's not something that I considered like a traditional career growing up, right? Like I went to school, I was pre-med, like the plan was to go to medical school and, you know, have a, like a respected job like that. And nobody I knew was a sports writer or even a journalist. And it just took a little, mental reframing in my early and mid 20s to figure out that this was something that I wanted to do something that was acceptable to do but once I realized that it was you know making me happy and was a good job I just like went full steam ahead I did a lot of freelancing um mm -hmm. I mean I even wrote for free for a little while first uh and just kept pushing and pushing until SB Nation gave me my full-time job and now I'm at the athletic <laughs> so that's awesome that's quite the journey I mean you mentioned the immigrant parents. I think that's a very normal uh, thing for a lot of us to go through, you know, with them wanting us to have, you use the, the word, their respectable job um, mm -hmm. and, you know, going into a field that, that they're comfortable with or they're familiar with. Um, exactly. And the other thing that you mentioned about, you know, no one that you know is a sports writer or was a sports writer at the time. I don't think a lot of people, you know, from our backgrounds were in sports at the time, or at least, you know, uh, for sports journalism at the time. And, I mean, obviously people like you and then lots of other folks have, have changed that and have made it a much more realistic thing. Uh, so, I mean, what, what part of the job do you 
most enjoy? What's most rewarding for you in your, your kind of your day to day? I would say the first thing is that so much of my life consists of watching basketball, which is legitimately one of my favorite things to do. So just to be able to spend all of my time with these games or, you know, watching on television or talking basketball with people, it's, I mean, I can't just describe what kind of a blessing it is that the thing that I was doing for most of my free time anyway, like I can't tell you the number of group texts I have that are just devoted to one of them's Duke basketball, one of them's Laker basketball, one of them's like NBA basketball, another one's women's basketball, right? Like all of that just gets to happen in my working life now too, which is just awesome. And then I, I also think that my job presents this intellectual challenge on a regular basis because writing like really taxes my brain. Like I have to think about it a lot. Like I enjoy the process of writing and putting together a story and, you know, sharing something that I find interesting with people who are going to read it, but it, it's work, right? Like it's hard for me to do. And like putting together the pieces is constantly a challenge, but I like that my mind is constantly working and that I get to do something a little bit different every day because every story requires a slightly different process, you know, to put together. Um, so just like the variety of what I get to do and the fact that it's always interesting and like stimulating for me is, is really rewarding. Yeah. I've, I've done a little bit of moonlighting as a sports writer in the past, you know, it's a lot of staff writing stuff for uh, fan sided sites and things like that. So um, I know that once it becomes like your day to day, it can be challenging to do that. The writer's block is real. Uh, it's definitely easier to get in front of a microphone uh, and talk versus, you know, putting the words down on paper. Uh, so you've been, you know, in the sports world and the basketball world for a few years now. What's been the highlight of, of this? I mean, and probably a tough question to answer. I'm sure there's a few, but what are, you know, a couple moments that have stood out to you? Maybe a time where you were starstruck by meeting someone. I know you're not a fan, but you know, or just a moment that you were really grateful to be able to experience uh, in person and as a professional? Well, I think first and foremost, I, I kind of want to dispute that. I'm absolutely a fan. Like, I, I may have this as a job, but, gotcha, you know, gotcha. I grew up a Laker fan. I grew up watching the LA Sparks in Los Angeles, too. Like, those are two associations that I've never given up, no matter how long I've been in this. Obviously, I'm a younger writer compared to some of the more veteran people, but, like, there are there are athletes who I grew up adoring. There are teams that I grew up adoring. And like those things don't just go away, right? Like everybody who I talked to in the WNBA knows that I'm always caping for the Sparks, even if I'm writing about other teams, if I'm covering other teams. That doesn't mean that I'm not critical of them. Obviously, I feel like I'm just as, you know, honest about the challenges that they face going forward. And I'm sure we'll get into WNBA stuff later. But, you know, I just think it's important to be honest with like my readers and the people who follow my work that like, yeah, I'm totally a fan of such and such players and such and such teams. And I think I can still be good at my job even while doing that. But I also think it makes me better because I genuinely care about the product that I'm watching, the product that I'm covering. Right. Um, but that means that I've definitely been in some starstruck moments. Uh, I think the first time that I met Jerry West while covering the Clippers was definitely a, whew, I can't believe this is happening kind of moment. I could not talk. <laughs> I was carrying a plate, you know, like an empty plate of food. Thank God dropped it. Uh, he offered to pick it up. I said, no, 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 I can do this. <laughs> and then, that was the first time I met Jerry West. Uh, and then just like the act of, you know, getting to walk around an arena as if like I work there as opposed to, you know, having to like sit in my seat and, you know, uh, like act as a fan the whole time. That was such an interesting, you know, dynamic shift because like I've been to so many games as a fan before and like this was a sacred setting, right? Like where I was only allowed to occupy certain spaces and now I exist there differently, right? I get to walk around and just chat with people and players know my name. And it's just a, 
it's still like a very pinch me thing sometimes that like the people that I grew up spending so much time obsessing over, like those same type of people are like, Hey, Sabrina, like what's up? Yeah, that's, I mean, I've, I've had the opportunity to do that a few times uh, through the soccer writing I did for Fansided. And it's, it's a surreal experience at first because you're wondering like, what am I doing here? Am I supposed to be here? Am I allowed here? And then you flash the badge and it's very cool. It's, and it's a completely different experience versus coming in as a fan. Um, and the other thing you mentioned about the fact that you are still a fan, I think is a very, it's like a new concept in, in sports writing. I feel like growing up, all the sports writing, sports writers were all kind of like older dudes who were kind of grumpy and they were, they never talked about the team in a positive light and they could never show any sort of bias. And I think the, the bias or, you know, whatever you want to call it, I think it adds some flavor to the coverage, as long as you understand that, you know, where people are coming from and who they, they kind of root for in the background. But I mean, do you think it's a, it's a positive, you think it brings a different kind of spin to, to the work that you do? I mean, I think everyone who's in this business is, you know, interested in basketball, interested in sports, you know, at some point or another. And like that enthusiasm, that joy, I would hope carries into the work, whether they're fans of individual teams, whether they're fans of the league as a whole, like, I don't think it particularly matters. I just think it's important to be honest about the fact that like, we all bring some sort of perspective. We all bring some sort of bias into it. Uh, Just being able to put that to the side while you're working on something is just the most important part. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Um, So you started off your career covering the NBA for SB Nation, right? So, and now you're covering, you know, the women's basketball, WNBA. I think this is kind of a segue into some of the challenges that WNBA faces as well. But what do you think, you know, are some of the biggest differences and some of the, you know, things that you've experienced in covering the the two leagues? Yeah, that's an interesting, um, interesting thing to think about. I kind of started covering both leagues at the same time and... Uh, At that point, this is like pre-pandemic, the access to both was fairly similar, right? Like you had open locker rooms, you had the opportunity to talk to players and coaches pre-game, shoot around, post-game, like all of the access points were very similar. There obviously is a distinction between some players who are significantly more famous and have more money, who don't think that they need to participate in the media activities as much as others. So I did notice, you know, at certain levels that I thought the WMA players were a lot more giving with their time than NBA players. And that wasn't like, you know, a a blanket statement. There were obviously some NBA players who were perfectly wonderful and gave really thoughtful answers. It's just like at the star level, there was some differences between the very best NBA players realizing that they have a platform where they can reach audiences without having to go through the media. Whereas the very best WMA player is like the media is still a very useful outlet for them. So that was something that sort of struck me right away. Um, I do think that that balance has, I wouldn't say it's shifted. Like uh, there are definitely some more popular women's basketball players now that that don't need the media uh, in the same way. But I still think as a whole, um, just like the women that I speak to are a little bit more understanding of the role that media plays in the growth of their overall league. Because the WNBA is Mm -hmm. growing at a significantly different rate than the NBA is, right? Like the NBA, I wouldn't say that it's plateaued. It's obviously still reaching massive viewership numbers and like, but it's in a different phase of its existence than the W. Whereas, you know, the WNBA, the players realize that they still need to take part in, you know, moving it forward. So I think that's part of it. But then you know, after the pandemic and in this past year, the WNBA shut its locker rooms. And uh, that's really changed the type of interactions that I can have with players because 
I did hear about this. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like mm-hmm. I, I think this is one thing that people don't necessarily understand if you're not in the media space where a lot of the conversations that I have with players and executives and coaches, they're not just for a story. They're me trying to get to know them so that when I do need something for a story, it's easier to have a conversation with them because I think anybody can understand this. The first time you talk to someone is not going to be the most productive conversation, right? Like there's a getting to know you phase. And the locker room was so helpful in terms of just getting an opportunity to say hi to people, talk to them about things that are not necessarily basketball related or game related and just, you know, establish a level of familiarity, a level of comfort. And I really do miss that because now every time I have to talk to a player, it has to be transactional because I'm taking a moment of their time away, you know, that they could be leaving, you know, to go early. Like I'm holding them at the end of practice. I'm holding them after a game. And I just think that changes the relationship that you build with them. And I have missed that a little bit. And I've noticed that because like I can still talk to executives and I can still talk to coaches like in just sideline mm-hmm. spaces. And I feel like those relationships have worked out really well for me. Whereas I don't know that I've gotten to connect with as many players as maybe would have been possible had the locker room still been open. What was the driver behind it? Is it just COVID? Was it something else? That, that so what's interesting is that the locker room was open in 2022, but then in 2023, the WNBA made a decision to close it. And the rationale as, you know, specified by the the players association in the league was that so many players were being forced to stay late that weren't actually being talked to. And they just wanted an opportunity to leave earlier. Uh, And then there was also some discussion about the locker room being a private place and that, you know, they would prefer not to have media in there. And I'm receptive to the idea that maybe you don't want people in a locker room. I still do think having the players in a, you know, mixed zone area for like people who cover soccer or just like a separate room. That's not your locker room, but still gives you the opportunity to just walk like one by one to player and maybe like talk to four of them at once because group conversations are awesome too because people just chime in to one another and you get different answers than you would expect. Um, I would hope that they had given, you know, some alternative to the locker room space if that was the issue. And then as far as like wanting to leave early, I mean, the way the system works now after games, theoretically you have to stay even longer if a player is being requested. So I, I don't think that really solves the problem. Yeah, I guess it makes it just a much more formal process that, that mm-hmm. I can see why that's frustrating um, as a journalist. I mean, I mean, what do you what are some of the challenges you talked about the WNBA being in a different stage in the NBA and its growth? I mean, I think obviously the NBA has a, a significant head start on the WNBA in terms of popularity and all that. What are some of the challenges? Is it access? Is it, you know, things like this that you think are holding the league back? What do you think are some of the obstacles that they're facing in, the, in their growth? Yeah, so uh, just, you know, bare bones, the WNBA is about 50 years younger than the NBA. And in terms of where the NBA was at this point in its growth, like viewership numbers are fairly similar. Attendance is even more than what the NBA had. Obviously, population sizes are bigger, like that factors into it. So it's not a apples to apples comparison. But considering where the NBA was, like the WNBA is not altogether in a different space than a 27-year-old mm-hmm. NBA. But with all of the potential, you know, access points that the WNBA could have right now. I just don't think it's taking advantage of all of them. Like for one, the the media rights deal that the WNBA currently has, I think significantly undervalues the league. It doesn't put it on, you know, television in the most advantageous situations. Like, you know, you have playoffs competing against the NFL Sundays, which 
it's never going to work out very well for anybody, let alone the WNBA. Like the NBA shies away from competing against the NFL, right? Um, So that's part of it. I think just getting in better TV windows would help. Um, I also think that, you know, the WNBA was kind of scared off by the recession in like the late 2000s when a lot of the league uh, teams had to shut down and it stayed at the size of 12 for about, I think, 15 years right now. And you look at similarly, like, so I, I compare it a lot to the MLS because the MLS started in the same year as the WNBA. And the MLS is about to hit 32 teams, I think. And the WNBA is still yeah. at 12. And the MLS has decided that the way for it to make money is through expansion fees. And the WNBA is completely cutting off that source of income by refusing to expand to more teams. And you have this problem where the college game is getting more and more popular, has always been more popular than the WNBA because you have these built-in fan bases. It's a, you know, a product that exists all across the country, not just in 12 markets. And then you follow your favorite college players, and most of them cannot make the league because there's just not enough space. So you're losing an opportunity to expand to more markets. You're not capturing the college fan base. And then you're not getting these expansion fees. So I think that's those are all these things that the league wants to have like a sustainable business model in its first 12 teams before expanding. But I think a lot of the problems that it faces could be resolved by adding more teams. Um, you know, I think about the NWSL even. Like it's 10 years old. It already has 12 teams. It's supposed to expand to 16 within three years. Mm-hmm. And yes, women's soccer has a different like, you know, imagination in the U.S. than women's basketball does. But I do think that there are lessons to be had, you know, from just – having a larger footprint across the United States and mm-hmm. WNBA just kind of feels stuck the longer it stays at 12. Um, and then I guess just one last thing is like the WNBA is a very socially progressive league. You know, we had this uh, situation in 2000 where, uh, sorry, 2020 during the WNBA bubble season where the Atlanta dream like uh, backed a senatorial candidate from Georgia who was running against the owner of their team. Right. And so they backed, you know, Reverend Warnock ahead of uh, their owner, Kelly Leffler. And it's just the kind of thing where the WNBA takes social issues like very seriously. You know, they dedicated that season to the um, justice for Breonna Taylor. Um, But I wonder if sometimes the WNBA, like its messaging focuses so much on what it does other than basketball that we're ignoring the fact that like, hey, this is just a really cool basketball product. That's how we're supposed to be marketing it as a basketball product. And maybe we focus too much on the other things. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack there. Uh, I think on the yeah, sorry, I went a little long. <laughs> no, 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 it's it's great. I mean, I think on the issue of of expansion, I mean, I think that's a great point. I mean, it, I, the growth is growth is the way to grow. <laughs> it's pretty, it sounds pretty simple, right? Um, I understand that you do want to be sustainable and things like that, but there's so many huge media markets that just don't have a team that are probably you know crying out for a team. There's you know, the Bay Area doesn't have one, Philadelphia. Uh, Miami, right? I mean, there's a, there's some other ones I'm sure I'm, I'm missing. I'm leaving off, but just like you said with MLS, they found out that you know people will pay a ton of money to own a professional sports team. Um, and same with the NWSL. I mean, they're having incredible success in LA with Angel City. I know the Sparks are already in LA, but I think that success can be replicated in some of these other markets. Has there been any talk about expansion to some of these, you know, the, some of the biggest metro areas in the U.S.? Well, that's the thing. Expansion is always a talking point (laughs) and it's almost uh, doing a disservice because the more we talk about expansion without it happening, it's like the boy who cried wolf when the commissioner says like we've whittled down like a list of 100 cities to 20 and then to 10. And oh, no, now we're visiting 20 cities again. Um, There just hasn't been consistent messaging about what the league wants to do with regards to expansion. 
And at this point, fans are just getting a little like, let me know when it actually happens, you know? Sure. Yeah. And the other thing you mentioned about there just not being enough teams. I mean, I'm, I've been reading about first round picks getting cut the, you know, in their second year, just because there isn't enough roster spots. I mean, is that a potential solution? Maybe expanding a roster spot, having some kind of developmental league, you know, the a G League type for the WNBA as opposed to having, you know, full-on professional franchises. Is that something that's been discussed? Yeah, you know, a lot of coaches and players that I've talked to have talked about the idea of like a taxi squad, you know, maybe three players who aren't necessarily paid a full salary, but who get to practice with the team, who get to work out with the team, who, you know, have been to training camp, know the system. So when like a player goes out, you can bring them up and then it's like a nice developmental pathway so that, you know, if like, let's say, let's say you're a first round pick who gets cut in training camp, you don't play your rookie or right out of college. It's really hard to find your way back into the league, you know, like, because you're already behind all the players who are on the rosters and then the, you know, the next draft class comes in and how do you distinguish yourself from them? Because they're on cheaper rookie contracts and like more team control and yada, yada, yada. So it's just so hard to be a developmental player in this league unless you're in the perfect situation, right? Like, New York is carrying one rookie. Um, Las Vegas is carrying one rookie, right? Uh, a lot of these, like, and who knows if these players will even be able to make the roster the next year when salaries come a little higher for their existing veterans and now we have to, you know, shuffle some things around. So it's just really hard to be a young player in this league if you're not immediately contributing because then you're just seen as, like, this dispensable roster spot. And I do think that, I don't know if the WNBA has the infrastructure for like a full on G league. There was some talks about maybe like having um, a coexist a coexisting like three X three league where, you know, each mm. franchise sort of operates its own three on three team. And then like people are still playing and they're still around the franchise. And then maybe you can tap into that system if you need players when, you know, you have injuries and whatnot. But the idea of expanding roster sizes is definitely something that has gained a lot of momentum. Um, over at the athletic, we did a anonymous player poll of, you know, players around the league, got about a third of the league. And we asked the question of, you know, would you rather have expanded roster sizes or more teams? And the majority said expanded roster sizes because we're in the situation where like, you're only allowed to carry 12 players max. A lot of teams only carry 11 because they don't have the salary cap flexibility to carry 12. So if you lose two players to injury, all of a sudden you can't even run five on five in practice. And like that is just not a good way of running practices when you are a WNBA team. Oh. So yeah, I think any way to get more people in the building for the WNBA is a good thing, whether that's more teams, whether that's bigger roster sizes. I personally think both need to happen, but it's, it's all being discussed. It's just a very slow pathway to change. Yeah, absolutely. I think both of those are great paths, either the expansion of the, the league or the roster sizes. I didn't know that uh, they only carry 12 uh, because of the, those salary cap restrictions. I know the salary cap has become a point of contention as well. I mean, if I remember correctly, uh, Mark Davis, the owner of the Aces, was in some hot water for trying to circumvent the salary cap. And, uh, you know, there's the issue of the chartered flights and things like that. I mean, do you see these as as obstacles as well or are they just you know potential opportunities to to improve the league yeah there's a lot of things that the WNBA does with the theory of retaining competitive balance across the league so if certain owners are unable to pay for charter flights for their teams for all games we're going to institute a prohibition on charter flights for all teams you know um 
what Mark Davis does is actually some, what he was alleged to have done and what the aces were eventually required to forfeit a first round pick for was something that every team is not allowed to do. Like if you sign a contract with a team, they're not allowed to pay you more beyond the contract, right? Like that's just uh, something that exists at any level of any professional sports. Um, I'm sure because of the compensation that WNB players are making that they, there are deals all around the league, you know, for like, if you sign here, we'll make sure you get an endorsement by such and such, you know, and like, technically that's illegal. I personally don't care. I just want the players to get paid. Like they perform incredibly well at their jobs. They deserve to get more money. Um, one of the things that, you know, gets discussed, like the WNBA pay gap gets discussed a lot, like relative to the NBA. And like, I'm not super interested in that number. It's just the revenue that the WNBA makes the players don't get an equal share of that as they do in the NBA. And so I understand players wanting to get more money, even if it's like in fuzzy ways, I don't particularly care one way about that or the other. Um, but yeah, the, the WNBA says that it's instituting all these measures for competitive balance, but there are all these other ways that competitive balance doesn't exist in the league, right? Like there are better coaches, there are better players, there are better practice facilities, there are larger performance staffs. So to you know hold the line at these one or two specific things seems very silly to me. Um, and I think if you want to move the league forward, then you have to let certain teams bring it forward and then see who will come along with them. And either they will or they'll fall behind. They have to sell. Yeah. I mean, it's just like in the NBA, right? I mean, obviously there is that competitive balance, a salary cap, whatever, but mm -hmm. you know, there's owners that are willing to exceed and deal with the luxury tax. There's owners that'll spend, you know, a couple hundred million dollars on a state of the art practice facility and exactly. some, that want their guys to practice in like a high school gym or something. So, uh, yeah, it, that's a great point. And the, the point that you made about, uh, you know, the revenue share, I, I don't think anyone reasonable is saying that the NBA or WNBA players should match the NBA salary, but right. I think it's very reasonable to say that they should get the same percentage of the revenue. I think that seems like a, a no brainer type thing. I get why the owners wouldn't want that, but it seems like the natural progression in this conversation. Uh, and the last thing you mentioned about, uh, you know, the the messaging of the WNBA and the social issues and the things like that. Uh, you know, I, I'm curious about that. I mean, I, I feel like their messaging used to be, hey, women play basketball too. I feel like it's it's morphing a little bit into, hey, you know, these are great athletes doing, you know, cool things that athletes do. I mean, what do you think? Have you think that, do you think that's on a, a purposeful move to move the focus away from, hey, come watch women play basketball versus come watch, you know, the best in the world do what they do. I guess I'm not sure I understand the difference in what you're asking there. Like, like do you, do you think it was a, a decisive, like a, something they, they, they decided, like, let's try to shift away from the fact that highlighting that these are women athletes versus that these are just, this is just the best in the world doing what they do? Yeah, you know, I think um, the... The comparison to the NBA, I don't know that it's ever served the WNBA that well because mm -hmm. on the one hand, like it was helpful at the start of the league to have franchises that were also owned by NBA franchises. So you had this built-in infrastructure, you know, like of facilities, arenas, all of that, like Names. the understanding of how to run a basketball mm -hmm. league. Um, but comparing women's basketball players to men's basketball players just doesn't work. One, they don't play the same length of the game. And two, their bodies are different. The way they play the game is different. And I don't think that you know, saying like, oh, like Alyssa Thomas put up this stat line that has only happened once in WNBA history and it's happened a hundred times in NBA history. Like that doesn't do a service to either side because, you know, it just, 
one, it makes it seem like men are stat padding, but like it also doesn't look, it looks like it's an inferior product then, which I don't, I don't think that's the way you want to sell it. So I think just the proximity to the NBA has been difficult for the WNBA to overcome because on the one hand, yes, it is like it owns half of the WNBA and the financial benefits are obviously important, but, um, this is just an entirely different product, right? Like in college basketball, we don't have commercials of Paige Beckers alongside, like, I can't think of a single Connecticut men's player's name, like Jordan Hawkins or something, you know? Sure. Uh, or like, you know, I literally can't think of men's college basketball. So I'm just not going to do this little exercise anymore. But, I get what uh, you're saying. I yeah. Get we don't, we don't prop them up next to each other. Like Connecticut women's basketball is its own thing and it's promoted as such. And I think that's, you know, where the WNBA should fall. Yeah, I think we saw some of that messaging leading up to the Women's World Cup. I think the, was it the French French national team? They did some kind of uh, digital photoshopping of putting, you know, the the face of some men's players on the women's bodies and said, oh, look, they're doing the same thing. And I, I understood the intent behind it. I don't think the message landed quite uh, mm-hmm. as well as they hoped it would. But yeah, I, I totally agree. It's it's a completely different thing, and it should be appreciated for what it is. That it's you know, a, it's not a different sport, but it's just it's a different group of people playing this this game at an incredibly high level, and that should be enough to uh, to appreciate it. Uh, so, in terms of the growth of of the WNBA, uh, what are some of the major changes that you've seen in you know the coverage, the uh, exposure, maybe some things on social media or media rights? What do you, what are some of the bigger biggest changes or biggest drivers of the growth of the league yeah i think um getting on television is one thing you know WNBA has a league pass product like nba does and all of the games are generally available there if they're not on national television but you're seeing more and more games available on national platforms like whether that's games streamed via twitter or this deal with amazon prime or cbs sports or ion all of these are different platforms that didn't exist from when i first started covering the league um so that's you know just when things are on television, people will watch them. Like that's just how the world works. So getting things on national television always helps. There are more games on ABC. There are more games on ESPN versus ESPN two, you know, like those things matter. ESPN two is a more premium channel than ESPN. Like not everybody else gets it. So I think more visibility, obviously a big thing that's happened for the league. I think the talent level has just gone up even more and more, you know, um, like since I started covering the league, Asia Wilson entered the league and obviously one of the greatest players we've ever seen. Um, we're about to get this huge influx of college stars. Oh, Aaliyah Boston just came in. We're going to get Caitlin Clark and Paige Beckers and, you know, just this enormous line of college stars who's about to come in with their huge NIL followings and bring a new fan base into the league. Um, I also think that, uh, you know, the, the quality of the player experience has also gone up a lot of places. Like, uh, the San Antonio Stars moved to Las Vegas, you know, sold to MGM and then sold to Mark Davis, who has built his own practice facility, uh, hired Becky Hammond for a million dollars, you know, more than any coach had ever been paid in WNBA history. Uh, we're seeing, you know, a new ownership in Phoenix pour a lot of money into the Mercury. Uh, obviously, the size bought the Brooklyn, I'm sorry, the Brooklyn Nets owners, the Joe size, like bought the New York Liberty, took him out of Westchester County Center, like this high school facility that they were playing and put them into Barclays Center. And now like that's a real world-class professional organization. A couple other leagues, a couple other teams are also building their own practice facilities. Like it's just, it's an arms race, right? Like you see one team doing something and everybody wants to match that. Like how else are you going to compete in free agency, you know? Um, And like free agency too, the fact that the WNBA amended its um, like contract rules so that there's actually player movement during the off season means we start talking about the league about two months earlier than we ever did before. 
So there's a lot of positive drivers, you know, um, still a lot of work to do, obviously, but I, I do think it's a significantly better product than when I first started covering it like six years ago. Yeah. And I mean, one of the other things is, I mean, you, you mentioned the covering the social justice and pushing those issues. So as a result, I'm sure there's some controversial, challenging situations or topics that you have to cover, you know, things related to was gender equality, diversity, things like that. You know, what's what's your approach to that? I mean, do you aim to stay objective as a reporter? You know, yeah. what approach do you take to covering those sort of topics? Maybe like the, the Brittany Griner one, for example, or, you know, some other ones, I'm sure. Yeah. yeah, I think the thing with sports is like, no matter what league you're covering, these are just people, right? And people experience issues the same way you and I do, like just because they're professional athletes who happen to have very high profile jobs doesn't mean they don't still deal with like pregnancy discrimination or, you know, all sorts of issues that face normal people in the workplace. And that's just the way I try to approach it, right? Like, I know these people that I'm writing about. There's obviously a layer of sensitivity attached to it. But, you know, you just report it the same way you would report anything else. Make sure you have the facts behind it and present the story in the most objective way possible. Yeah, that, that makes perfect sense. I mean, and you mentioned this becoming an arms race in the WNBA with with teams competing, with practice facilities and all kinds of things like that. And I think, you know, like we don't want to compare it to the NBA. It's, it's kind of a lazy thing to do. But one of the things that that helped the NBA in its popularity was the the dynasties in the 80s and the, the competitive fire that we saw and the storylines and the narratives. So, I mean, uh, is that something cooking up? You mentioned Las Vegas and New York as some of the teams that were doing kind of the most when it came to the competitive balance and the, the arms race. Do you see them as a, you know, the dynasties and the, the competitive dynasties that we're going to see that the WNBA build on? And is the WNBA taking that opportunity to use these narratives to, to grow the league? Yeah, I think the WNBA has almost done too much to promote the Las Vegas, okay. New York rivalry <laughs> this year. Uh, from the very moment that Brianna Stewart signed her contract this offseason, it's been, oh, super team in Las Vegas, super team in New York. And, you know, there's it's great to have a storyline to build your season around. I think, especially when you have the two best players in the league on those opposite teams, you know, the winners of the last three of the last five MVP trophies, um, three of the last WNBA champions, I'm sorry, three of the last five MVP trophies, three of the last five WNBA champions. Uh, if you took like the 15 best players in the league, I would say that eight come from those two starting lineups. Like there's a huge consolidation of talents. It's very marketable. There's an easy draw. It's West coast, East coast, you know, uh, I do think just having that storyline to frame things is helpful. You know, it's easy for fans to latch onto. And the games have, frankly, been pretty interesting this year. And they're both at the top of the standings projected to meet in the finals if everything shakes out the way it's supposed to. So, yeah, I think the WNBA is absolutely leaning into this. It's a smart idea. Rivalries have always worked well, you know, for professional leagues, even with the WNBA, like, in the late 2010s. There was a Minnesota Lynx-Los Angeles Sparks rivalry that did really well in terms of pushing numbers. Like, that was one of the highest viewed finals, I think, in the league's history. So it makes a lot of sense to continue promoting the league this way. I'm sure the other 10 teams wish they had more of a say in it. But again, it's all about, you know, pushing everyone forward, right? Like, these teams found a way to, like, consolidate all these stars. Now we're seeing every other team that has a big all-star, they all just signed huge extensions during, the you know, the end of the regular season. So... Like the competition does not stop, right? Like just because these two teams happen to be ahead for now, like everybody is chasing down their backs for 2024. Yeah, it's a definitely an easy way to, to to bring in the casual fan, 
is to to pit these two teams, say the super team narratives, things like that. I'm sure some of the the basketball purists might shake their head a little bit and say, you know, what about the other ten teams? There's you know X great player on this team and things like that. But um, you know, it is much easier to sell, put on a billboard or put in a you know a 30 second promo on ESPN versus you know some of the more detailed basketball coverage. So. I mean, I, and I at think least I've, there's I've seen, two, you know, yeah. and it's not like just one mm-hmm. team running away with everything. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, at Las Vegas, they won the championship last year, right? So I'm sure mm-hmm. there's some narratives about them defending and you know, Liberty trying to knock them off and all that. So it's fun for sure as a casual fan. Uh, and I, I've been seeing the growth of women's college basketball kind of mirror the growth of the WNBA. You mentioned a couple times with some of these big stars that are coming in with their big NIL following and I mean, do you, do you, one of the things that actually came up during the, the tournament was that some of these players are choosing to stay behind, you know, stay in school longer because of these big NIL deals compared to a WNBA contract, or maybe they're worried about the WNBA rosters. Do you think that could be a driver of change when maybe they lose out on a, a star deciding to stay, you know, an extra season in college versus coming out to the WNBA? I would sincerely hope that that's a driver of change. You know, as far as the NIL deals, like you'll get sponsorships whether you're in college or not. Like if you're a good player, Mercedes-Benz is going to want to sponsor you whether you live in Baton Rouge or whether you, you know, are playing for the Chicago Sky. So I don't think that's too much of an issue. I think it's just more so player experience, right? Like college, the best teams, charter flights, they do not do that in the WNBA, right? Um, You also just get to like be the big woman on campus. Like that's pretty cool, you know, winning national titles and like, getting to walk around without a care in the world, like leaving college and going to be an adult. uh, I can understand why people would want to stay a little bit longer. And this is not going to be a thing that exists forever. Like this is the last class that has the eligibility to use a COVID year. So it's not going to be something that, you know, pops up, you know, too far down the line. But I do think that like a big challenge for the WNBA is just making sure that they capitalize on all this college momentum. Like we had a college national championship game, that you know peaked i think at like 12 million viewers or something at least 10 million and then we had the WNBA draft not 10 days later that was less than a million and Mm -hmm. the draft should be including all of the best college players and yet we couldn't capture you know even 10 percent of that audience do you think that might drive some of the changes in the eligibility because i believe now it's three years of college or three years post high school i'm not saying they'll go you know straight out of high school but could it be a one and done type situation eventually I don't think that's ever going to change in the WNBA. I mean, it's not even three. You have to be graduated from college or at least oh, wow. 22 okay. years old by the time mm. you enter the WNBA draft. And because the league has so few spots, I can't imagine them opening up you know, to more players and forcing out more veterans. That just doesn't seem like it's going to be good for business either way. And I think getting college products who are ready to contribute, you know, who have gone through four years of even more maturity and seasoning. Like, I think that's better for the WMA game as a whole because there's no roster spots available mm-hmm. for you to have players to develop, right? Like if you're 19 and don't know how to play yet, what good are you on a 12 player roster? Um, so I, I don't think that that's a rule that's going to change. I think it's more just the WNBA figuring out how to, you know, convert that audience into a pro audience as well. Got it. Yeah, maybe one day in the distant future when there's 20 or 24 or 30 WNBA teams, who knows? Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, I, I can see why they would keep that rule as is. And I didn't honestly didn't know it was four years. I thought it was three. So that's good to know. So before we let you go, I mean, any predictions for the upcoming season? You did met or the upcoming playoffs. I know we're coming up on that in the next uh, two weeks, right? Uh, you mentioned the uh, Liberty and the Aces are top of the standings. They're projected to meet in the finals. 
Do you smell any upsets brewing? How do you see things playing out? At the risk of being supremely boring, I do not predict any upsets. I have said this <laughs> elsewhere. I think the first round is going to be entirely sweeps, actually. Um, and I do think that we're going to get that long-awaited New York-Las Vegas matchup in the WNBA Finals. As far as what happens, I took the Liberty as my preseason pick. Um, I recently suggested that Las Vegas having home court advantage gives them the slightest of advantages. I, I really don't know what to do here. I think I'm just going to stick with my preseason pick, New York, because Brianna Stewart, what she does is win titles, and she hasn't won one in like three years. So it's about time, Stewie. Yeah, yeah it's it's good to stick with your pick. You don't want to switch up last minute. Uh, <laughs> I'm a Raiders fan, so I am, you know, an Aces fan kind of by default. We don't have a, a local team out here in the Bay Area, so just pick the next best thing. And it, it's nice to cheer for the best team in the league. So where can folks find your work? Where can they follow you on, on social media, aside, of course, from The Athletic? Yeah, I mean, um, really all of my work shows about The Athletic. We also have, um, in addition to the written content at theathletic.com, we also have The Athletic Women's Basketball Show, a podcast that's coming out two times a week, talking about all things women's basketball right now it's more WNBA related just because we're in the playoffs they do start on Wednesday so yeah just check me out there awesome thank you so much for your time really appreciate you coming on um and we'll hopefully we'll catch up sometime soon maybe after the playoffs we could do a, a season interview or something like that but once again appreciate your time thanks Once again, big shout out to Sabrina Merchant of The Athletic for joining us on the podcast today to talk about women's basketball, the future of the WNBA, her career, all that good stuff. I mean, it's been great to see as a basketball fan, uh, you know, the growth of the women's game in both the professional and college levels. And I know the WNBA playoffs are going to be a great ride this year. They were a lot of fun. So if you don't tune in now, make sure you uh, hop on that bandwagon and start watching because the basketball is great. It's the best players in the world doing what they do. So make sure to tune in. Uh, as far as this podcast, thank you for listening. Make sure to leave us a review and subscribe wherever you're listening to this podcast. Make sure to check us out on all the major social media channels at 4040VisionPod. We're on Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, all that good stuff. Uh, we also launched a newsletter. Uh, so go to 4040VisionMedia.com. You can sign up for our newsletter and you can get these episodes straight to your inbox, both on the podcast platforms and on YouTube. So thanks, y'all. Peace out.